0: Today on Pop Talk.
1: Diversity isn't always visible, and so there's this intersectional component to our identities.
0: Pop Talk is a fact and science based podcast dealing with important health topics. Our focus is to educate, entertain, and inform you on a variety of health issues. And now your hosts, Dr. Shane Fernando, Dr. Amy Rains Melankoff, Prachi Thopper, and Sukanya Roy. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Shane Fernando. In this episode, we'll be talking about our last three episodes, the special arc where we discussed racism and its effect on healthcare, in its integration through insurance and housing and the history of racism throughout the years. So what do we need to do from here? It's fine to keep talking about these topics, but we need to actually have some sort of action going forward. because We want to improve the lives of our fellow human beings. My co-host, Dr. Amy Rains-Milenkov, and our student host, Sukanya Roy, are also on the line.
2: Hello, Dr. Fernando. I'm really excited about this conversation today and hearing from our panelists that we've had. This is Amy Rains-Milenkov, Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Women's Health. And we are joined today with with our excellent panelists, including Dr. Bryn Esplin, a bioethics expert here at the UNT Health Science Center.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Sukanya Roy. I'm a medical student in my fourth year, and today we are pleased to welcome back Dr. Harlan Jones, who works in health disparities research, Dr. Christina Robinson, the pediatrician for the Pediatric Mobile Unit, and Missy Wilder, the director of Health Star. Start. Hi
1: everyone, I'm Dr. Eslin. I teach medical ethics and jurisprudence at TCOM, and I am pleased to join you again.
4: Hello, my name is Harlan Jones, uh, Associate Professor in the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at the Health Science Center. Nice to be with everyone again.
5: Hi, everyone. This is Christina Robinson, I'm a Pediatrician and Medical Director for the Pediatric Mobile Clinic. I'm an Assistant Professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Women's Health at UNT Health Science Center.
6: Hello, everyone. I am Misty Wilder, the Director of Healthy Start. In the Pediatrics and Women's Health Department at the UNT Health Science Center.
0: Thank you all for joining us once again on our panel. Um, it's been delightful hearing from everybody and getting to know your perspectives and knowledge and expertise on the variety of topics that we've presented so far. So what have you observed happening in, in the world in the United States Um, because of discussions that have been happening due to race as has enough been done is, is the message getting lost anywhere? Is it changing? Um, What are things that you've seen started that potentially have started to improve or maybe things that we could do better in?
4: So this is Harlan. I I would just like to uh, start off and and say that, uh, yes, I've seen a lot of uh, activity in the form of, of listening sessions, um, and obviously these are coming from academic and healthcare settings, which i um, am, am a part of, so it's very uh, nice to see that in response to to the, uh, the adverse experiences and negative uh, aspects about racism that uh, we have seen a call and what's and what's I think most uh striking and, and and happy to see is that we see a call. And an urgency from every many uh, persuasions and populations of, of the call um, to address the injustices and racism that we see around health.
1: This is uh, Dr. Esplin. I think I've seen that conversations like this, that engage multiple stakeholders from diverse perspectives, have yielded. I think, the most interesting and productive opportunities. And they are opportunities because they need and deserve action. But ones that don't include uh, multifaceted approaches and different stakeholders have a danger to become even more divisive.
5: Hi, this is Dr. Robinson. I think what I have seen is a transparency of um, people being willing to share the harm that they have experienced, the burdens that they've carried. And I've also seen compassion on um, the parts of those who were unaware that there was an issue, but now are ready to, to listen and to hear where there have been problems.
2: Yeah, so one of the things I've been wondering about since we've had these these conversations, and there's conversations going on in so many different places around the kitchen table, around the faculty table, out in the community uh, about uh, racism and the role that it plays. And I'm wondering as a group of educators and people that are out in the, working in the community, what what can we do to increase minority representation in the health profession?
4: Well, so one of the things that uh, historically uh, we've, uh, I've been uh, very uh, invested in, in doing in past experiences is supporting the uh, pathways and those opportunities further upstream. Um, starting at K through 12 all the way up to where we hope to eventually make that change in the graduate and health professional fields. it's so important where it begins is with a knowledge of STEM and around science. And and so many opportunities are lost very early because those types of uh, the science disciplines, for example, are not nurtured in a way. Or the uh, resources available at uh, K through 12 uh, institutions are uh, are not available in in some communities uh, compared to others. And so from, from my standpoint, how we get there is really looking early and, and working the transition points um, along that uh, educational path.
2: Kind of a follow-up to that question, I'm wondering, what is the, the panelist's feelings about the impact of racism on medical education? So we talked a little bit about how people get, um, you know, making pathways to the health professions, but once you're in the health professions and you're in the, the education system, uh, I guess my question is really asking about what what is your has been your experience or your thoughts about um, the impact of racism in that setting?
1: I think there have been so many impacts, but to speak from someone who's lucky enough to be at the table on the admissions committee in a capacity to serve uh, and select new candidates for medical school, having an awareness and a very sharp lens to these issues when we evaluate candidates because we can never do so completely blindly. And so to not only be aware of implicit biases but hold our colleagues accountable in a compassionate way to look at candidates as fairly as we possibly can. But to uh, Dr. Harland's point, or I'm sorry, Dr. Jones, uh, point about being s- so intentional. And I love that he used the word nurtured, because it is a, a nurturing, intentional pathway. I, uh,
5: I would agree with that, Mrs. Dr. Robinson, with both Dr. Jones and Dr. Esplin, because I think we also have to remember that there's a cultural competence um, piece to um, medical education and higher, higher ed, and, and that we also have to look upstream, right? So if those pieces are not provided in K through 12, and then again in undergraduate programs for communities that are prim- primarily minority um, communities, then they will not have that same level of cultural competence stepping into the arena of higher ed, and so uh, it's about being able to recognize that as a gap and then nurturing that gap so that they can be successful within the new arena. Yeah, I think these comments Dang, really illustrate. That...
3: Sorry.
2: Sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was just saying to how, illustrate how, uh, as uh, Dr. Esplin said in the beginning, how multifaceted it is, approach that we need to take. So go ahead.
3: Um, I was just going to say that uh, as a student, I know that when we were learning um, about dermatology and our professors would put up slides of different skin dis- conditions that we were going to learn about, almost all of them were on white skin. And when I think about it, I don't even know what Rocky Mountain spotted fever or syphilis looks like on black skin or brown skin. So I think that, you know, it's like a small example of how. We're really not 100% competent to, you know, be there for our Black patients in the future because we were taught in a very white-focused way where we learn diseases from a different perspective. And I think that's definitely going to be something that we're going to have to keep ourselves to be better equipped when we do see those kinds of patients in the future so that we can be the best kind of advocate for them.
0: You know, that's a great point uh sakanya and that was something that was brought up by other students and some faculty um in the past few weeks and what from from my knowledge so far is that we are being trying to be more intentional about adding more uh varied skin tones in every example and um just one one example of an upcoming module that we're building for third years is a uh, child abuse module where we're Um, part of it is going to be showing examples of child abuse and intentionally choosing more than one skin tone so that um, our future students and future physicians can truly get an understanding of what these signs may look like on different children. That's a
3: really great idea.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping that it it will progress and um, become a little bit more widespread throughout the curriculum for sure.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think something else that could help is having a curriculum committee that will audit lectures and remove problematic content that may perpetuate false notions around race before the lecture actually you know uh, provides that information to the entire class because we learn a lot from our professors and faculty, and sometimes there's like this hidden curriculum that is not really taught directly but we learn from the way that professors present that information, if that makes any sense.
0: Somewhat, would you mind giving us an example?
3: Yeah, so I guess, um, I guess like, what I'm trying to say is sometimes faculty can unintentionally teach students um, certain biases through their behavior, even if they're not trying to do that. So um, finding ways to, you know, catch that before uh, that information is given out or, you know, just becoming more aware of it before you um, present information like that, that could potentially be problematic and possibly be a good idea.
1: I think that's such a wonderful point and it illustrates that nothing is content neutral or content objective. There's always a possibility for an unintentional subjective piece that is as pedagogically informing uh, as anything else. So having a faculty peer review committee, but also having students um, serve with us before uh, that lecture material happens live and to be super intentional about the ways in which we're constructing simulations so that we're inclusive, but we're not stereotyping.
4: Yeah, I'd like to follow up on that because it's such an important question. And when you reflect on on these comments, I think about the the instructor or the faculty. Um, who do they look like? Are we diverse enough that when we sit around the table and design curriculum, when we to to engage and be intentional, maybe it's uh, it's uh, it's not available or not possible without an equal representation of all cultures cultures within the, as, as faculty who are delivering the content.
0: I love that idea. I mean, I, um, I have gotten feedback from some students and Sukanya, you can probably shine a light on this for us too. I mean, as a TCOM student has gone through um, over three years now. Um, did you wish early on for more diverse representation from your faculty or was that something that you didn't really think about or um you know just what are your opinions on that
3: i think uh that's definitely something that i had always been thinking about you know me and my classmates always you know wished for more of that but um yeah i guess like it wasn't in the forefront in the center just like it wasn't in the center of my attention just because we were also just caught up with studying during the first two years, especially when we're learning our didactics that um, we kind of forget about what's going around us. And we kind of forget to take a step back and think about who's teaching us and who's creating the content that we are learning.
1: Just to follow up on that, um, keeping in mind that diversity isn't always visible. And so there's this intersectional component to our identities. And I say that because I've been at the table where uh, somebody has made a joke about Muslims as terrorists or something, and or gay people not realizing that I'm gay and married to um, a woman who's Muslim. And so the ways in which we're diverse don't always show, um, And that that's an important consideration too.
0: Now, that's a very great point. Um, Sometimes we do only narrow it down to only skin, but it is a lot more than that. There is diversity in many different aspects of life.
5: And I think uh, if I can just follow up on that, I think in having this conversation, we have to look at it as not only do we need to look upstream at are we nurturing the coming students? But also we need to look um, downstream, like are we nurturing a faculty that is going to be diverse enough that will attract students uh, of a diverse um, background? Because oftentimes if students have an option to choose between a school that is not diverse and a school that is, Um, If all things are considered equal, often they will choose a school that is more diverse because they will feel more comfortable there. Um, And so I think we have to kind of look at both directions uh, in order to be effective.
1: One other thing I've been thinking a lot about is the ways in which we need to be incredibly mindful that our diverse students aren't used as tokens or (laughs) exploited I think that there, you know, and I'm going to use that word ex- exploitation when we then ask them how they feel. How can we better uh, create this curriculum? What ideas do you have? Because it takes so much of their time and their effort when they're trying to just get through medical school or get through any academic program. That to be mindful of asking them to do any work when it's our our work as educators and being mindful that if they want to participate that's such a gift to us
6: and I totally agree and um I wanted to suggest another thought um is that some people have different trajectories into how they enter the field so some may not enter traditionally how we may think k go uh, k through 12 then go to um college and all of those uh, traditional trajectories, but what about the people that's working around us now? Like, are we encouraging um, the medical assistants? Are we encouraging the CNAs to go into the field, which those uh, positions are typically filled with people of color. So are we encouraging those or are we only focusing on those up and coming? So there's some people in our clinic, have we ever, had conversations with them to encourage them to go back to school and encourage them to um, uh, take a, a step up in their career as well. And so we focus oftentimes on others, the up and coming, but what about those that we can impact in our sphere of influence right now that are people of color? Those are some people that have been working in the field, maybe just need someone to encourage them and say, have you ever thought of this?
0: That is a excellent point, and I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, how much uh, conversation we've had with um, all our uh, supporting providers, um, but it is definitely something we should keep in mind and have conversations with our group and say, "Hey, how can we help you progress? How can we help you reach your goals? Or what are your goals?" Um, and you know, sometimes people may not necessarily believe a particular uh, profession or a degree might be within their reach, but it oftentimes is. We just need to be able to help them somehow.
5: And you're absolutely right. Um, I think that this is snacking of mentorship it's not in a you know systematic form but it's that organic mentorship that often happens through proximity and through relationship and so often it's just because you happen to have an office that's next door to someone else that you even consider doing a particular thing for your family or 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 so on and so forth but that can translate into things that are much more significant when we're talking about something like this, like a career advancement. Um, And I think that that comes through that transparency and showing up as our whole selves, right? So when we have built authentic relationships, then we are more likely to have organic mentorship that not only helps us as individuals, but it helps those around us and in turn it helps our entire system to become stronger.
0: Very nicely stated, uh, Dr. Robinson. Actually leads into uh, one of the questions that we have um, in, in mentorship. I mean, when when I was going through uh, schooling and when I was looking for mentoring, it was a little bit difficult to find someone who uh, looked like me or had a similar background as a minority myself. But I was lucky enough to find some great mentors who were able to point me in a good direction. Um, What have each of your experiences been with finding mentors? And how would you suggest students um, or even those in additional fields, just like Misty expressed, uh, find great mentors to help them move forward in life?
6: In my experience, um, there's not very many um, Black women um, in public health and leadership uh particularly in our county um so typically um you have to i have to find someone in another field but use uh, my situation to um to get the mentorship that I need. I know that uh, Dr. Raines has done a good job with mentoring uh, me, but sometimes I just want to speak to a black woman and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I've experienced. This is what I said. Although I can have those conversations with Dr. Raines, but sometimes I want to have it from a black woman's perspective uh, in the field. And most of the time there are few and far in between. And so that's why I try to myself, uh, try to mentor the black students that are coming up in um, the School of Public Health program, um, whoever opportun- whenever I can get the opportunity, because I know that there are not many black women in leadership positions that we can glean from and say, hey, um, this is what I'm experiencing. How did you handle this? And things of that sort.
2: And and this is Dr. Rains, and I'm glad that that you brought that up because one of the things I think is really important for all mentors to realize is that you can't be everything to everyone and to really recognize how important it is for students of color that you may be mentoring uh, or colleagues, um, how important it is that they they are matched with someone that has a similar background, similar experience, because you just don't know the kinds of challenges that others may be experiencing just because of different background, different race, ethnicities, and other kinds of um, uh, diversity um, situations.
4: Yeah, I would just like to echo that point. It's 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 for me, you know, realizing the different needs I I have to I I need, if you will, and uh, looking for those with that purpose. Um, if it's a role model uh, that uh, I, I need as a mentor to have conversations around uh, diversity and culture, well, I, it may be uh, that intentional to look for someone uh, that fits that mold. If it's related to other um, expertise or experiences that I need, then uh, you must search and find those other uh, mentors out there to do so. So, you know, it's a collection of, of different uh, individuals that you can bring and, and form your own network, if you will, around mentors, particularly for uh, diverse students who may not have that level of access um, next, de- next door down or next hallway down, or even next building down at anyone's uh, institution or profession.
5: And I, I would agree. I think that um, I used to think that mentorship was um, a single relationship um, over a long period of time, but I now have transitioned to a perspective that mentorship is a very fluid um, concept. There are mentors that I have that I may spend uh, a very short amount of time um, with but I glean so much from them. And I may have multiple mentors at one time that I'm learning different skills from. Um, And then there are those long-term, almost like coaches who um, have really been instrumental in shaping the direction of my career um, that I may not talk to very often, but I still consider very um, significant in my life. So I, I think that, there are many different ways that mentorship will, will look and, and some of them will be systematic where it is a, an actual formal process um, where it's connecting people. And then I think others are, are more organic. And then I think some can be sought out by the mentee and then some can be um, sought out by the mentor.
0: That's an interesting thought, having the mentor seek it out. Um, that is something that we could do as faculty in our universities to actively seek out individuals who might need mentoring or might benefit from it somehow. So that is something to get, definitely keep in mind. Okay. Um, here, Amy, would you mind asking one of your questions, please?
2: Yeah. So we teach we teach students about um, how different groups experience different diseases and the disparities, um, and how you know how those different diseases play out in different uh, racial ethnic groups. But I'm wondering if we shouldn't take a uh, deeper dive into the role racism has on those same health outcomes.
5: Well, I will speak to that one. I agree wholeheartedly that we should teach our students um, from the beginning that um, social determinants of health and, and race are big drivers in a lot of the health outcomes and health disparities that our patients experience. And um, I'm often so surprised when I will have a student that's now a third or a fourth year that they have never heard that term or don't understand how that interplays in the in the health of their patients that they are going to serve. and. Um, I recently was attending a webinar and it was talking about um, ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and how that is a predictor for so many chronic diseases and other um, conditions. But then looking at that even in a broader perspective with putting systemic racism and um, the, um, the societal biases all within that framework. And then when you put it all together, it becomes, this this very overarching, um, deep-rooted system that can impact generations. And we know that to be true, generations of people who struggle with
1: chronic diseases. This is Dr. Asplen. I agree with everything that's been said. And one of the things that I'm bringing into some of my curriculum is just the thought just a critical lens about racial categories in and of themselves um, how they're artificial and socially constructed and yet become real are reified through this perpetuation and have actual uh, biological effects but that there's not race is a is an inaccurate proxy for biological explanations and yet because of socially conditioned responses and inequities it becomes real difference
6: and I think also um, when it comes to like looking at maternal mortality listening just uh, making sure that we're listening and centering uh, the voices of people of color Because oftentimes we felt unheard when we go to the doctor and looked uh, frowned upon, especially if we're using uh, Medicaid to pay uh, for as our payer for services. So just uh, making sure that our um, students that come out of medical school understand that um, to check their implicit their biases that they have among um, certain populations. And just uh, knowing that um, a system that was designed to be an oppressive system is still operating in that fashion, and we have to recognize that. And so sometimes it's up to us to call that system or that structure out, and if they have the opportunity to look at policies, working to change those policies so they're not oppressive to people of color
3: going off of that, how can we as future providers build a better relationship of trust with our patients?
6: I think um, if possible, listening to them. So um, as we talked in other podcasts, not just thinking that they're non-compliant just to be non-compliant because you think that's what a population does. So I think it's just making sure that you're really understanding from as much as possible what they're sharing of the family dynamics, systems, you know, transportation, housing, all of those things play a part, all of the social determinants of health. And so not just looking at it from one perspective in that first 15 minutes or that 15 minutes that you have with them, but really taking the time and having that bedside manner where you can really talk and get to know the families. I think that um, one of the things that we learned when Dr. Renz and I went to Cuba, is that the medical provider knew their patients. So they, they really wanted to get to know the patients that they were serving. And they knew the people also in the community. And I know it's not possible really for us to do that here, but they really knew who their patients were. And so when they treated them, the patient and them felt comfortable because the patient felt like that the provider really knew who they were and not just, okay, this is it, you didn't do what I told you to do last time, but like really looking at what are some barriers that are hindering the client from being compliant.
1: I think that's just such a wonderful point. Um, And when we think about what our patients share with us, it really is them sharing something, and so to share with someone, you have to trust them, Um, and I think that's just such a fundamental aspect of a patient-provider relationship, so thinking about what are they sharing with me, and what are they possibly not sharing with me, um, and trying to be open to elicit that um, is incredibly important.
3: Where's the balance between Asking for information and then just so you can know your patient better, but also being wary of how much time you're taking up because you do have a list of patients to go through and you have patients waiting in the waiting room and you don't want them to keep, you know, sitting there forever. So, what, like, how is how do you find the right balance between like trying to get to a patient but also not overdoing it so you can get to everybody?
6: I think it starts at the beginning, my first encounter with you. So if it's my first encounter, yes, it may take a little longer for me to not just be like, OK, what's wrong with you today? OK. And then but really like get to know it's been the first five or 10 minutes actually trying to get to know who I am and, uh vibe off of each other's uh, energy. And not just like, I don't understand, and I know it's a scheduling issue that somebody's waiting in the waiting room, but don't feel like, make me feel like I'm just going through a line and just you're just checking off a box, but really taking the time to hear what I'm saying and um, using motivational interviewing as a technique to really get some, uh, the questions answered and not just a yes, no, but having those open-ended questions through using motivational interviewing to get what you want and to build a relationship with the client.
5: And I, I wholeheartedly agree with Misty. I think that extra time that is required at the beginning of the relationship pays off because if you have a, an open and trusting relationship with your patient then when it is uh, something that is more delicate um, they're more likely to share um, at the beginning rather than you having to dig to receive that information and so typically you want to use, um, use your, your um, Typically, you want to use your your time to build that relationship as a a new patient to your practice Um, and then you can then capitalize on that time that you've already spent. It's kind of like money in the bank, right? When they come back to you, um, that's already been established and then you're able to move forward um, with that more focused patient interaction, but then you always want to come back to the foundational look that this is a person. And so typically, um, something that I tend to do is after I have gone through, you know, that they're here for a cough, and we've dealt with that, then I end with, okay, do you have any questions? And then I say to the parent, and how are you? Because typically, everybody has something going on whether it's just that they had a flat tire on the way to the doctor's office or they had a relative that died. And so just simply being able to share how they're doing and that someone else truly cares, that helps to build the relationship and it solidifies that trust.
6: And typically people find uh, providers through word of mouth, like when people are saying, I had a good experience at this provider. And so you refer that provider to your friends and to your family and say, oh, this is a person that really cares for me. Um, I think about uh, there was one OBGYN that delivered most black babies in Tarrant County. And it was because of we all, our mothers had a good experience. Our grandmothers had a good experience. So we already knew that once you got pregnant, all the way up until he retired and people were sad, like, what are we going to do? But it was because he built that relationship with um the black community and most people knew that if you went to this particular provider you were going to have a great uh birthing experience um and so uh the typically one bad experience can um spread because people will be like well don't go back to them or when somebody asks you typically like our clients will typically ask us um do you uh, know of a black pediatrician and where it's easy for us to say yes um go to Dr. Robinson, because we have that relationship with her we, and had clients that experienced uh, that great service. And so they come back and say it to us so we feel comfortable with referring. Or we'll say, go to this OBGYN because, and they go off of our word. And so we have to make sure that, that how we treat people is treat everybody that way and not just some people based on their skin color or again, how they're paying for the service.
1: And not to put too fine a point on it, but I think we've all um, touched on the fact that time is such a precious commodity. And so calling out the medical system as a whole is an institutionalized uh, problem of just packing your schedule with these patients. um, With patients, because if you don't have the time to get to know them, then the treatment you're recommending is possibly uh, bad medicine. How are you actually coming up with a treatment regimen when you don't know their goals of care and when you don't have time because there's people waiting? Are are they waiting for just that level of care too? I think rethinking and pushing for, and I know it sounds very idealistic, but holding the line and saying, we are not treating people in the standard of care that they deserve because our schedules are such that we can't.
0: I mean, yeah, we do have a, a limiter of time and trying to, make sure that our patient visits are appropriately um, filled with the amount of information that are coming in for uh, a reason and that has to be taken care of. There has to be some education thrown in there and then interaction. It's a little, I know it's a little challenging for a lot of providers to engage with um, the patients that way, but do you think that maybe using some of our additional healthcare care uh, providers such as our MAs, our nurses, or even our students, to engage with the, um, the patients to try and get an understanding of where they're coming from might make them feel more welcome or should it really be coming from the physician themselves?
6: I think it can have a multidisciplinary approach, not just the MAs, but social workers on staff and things of that sort. So if there's something not just um, using a social work role for just this person needs a mental health resource. So um, here you just pass them off, but doing that warm handoff to really see what are the needs in the family, because sometimes they come in for one thing, but there's, we never get to the root of it. So you're really treating a symptom using a, a multidisciplinary approach where the team works together to make sure the family has what they need to um, go on to live this life of wh- a wholeness, um, medically, mentally and physically.
5: And I agree wholeheartedly with Misty. I think uh, uh, inter- interprofessional team is absolutely vital. Um, but I do think that that team has to be on the same page at the same time. So um, in, in the training of our students and then in our staff, um, our MAs and our nurses and our social workers, our public health um, consultants, that we have to all have this holistic model, right, that we are trying to uh, help support the family to achieve wellness and um, it's the family. So typically, it's we as, as a healthcare system have um, individualized things so much that we're looking at this one patient. But typically, most people don't live a completely isolated life, they have lives that are in the context within their family. And so, it's about trying to achieve wellness for the whole family, and that in turn will lead to wellness for our patient and wellness for the family usually translates to wellness for the community right and so it becomes this ripple effect um but we have i agree with dr epson we kind of have to toke the line at some point and say you know what enough is enough and we have to stand for that we want these outcomes and this is what is best for our patient now how do we do that i think that's that's the bigger question right and How do we do that as as an institution and how do we do that as an entire profession i don't
0: know well that's a that's a big question dr robinson and um i think that's getting to the crux of what this whole podcast uh, episode has been about it's just what do we do from here what do we go what what kind of actions should we take um i mean from my perspective it seems like the biggest aspect of all of this discussion is empathy and trying to connect with uh, an individual to not have preconceived notions, even though we are exposed to those notions while we're growing up and they sometimes become a subconscious thing. We have to be consciously aware of how much those prejudices and those assumptions might come out and how they may affect the way we interact with those around us. Um, I know it's a learning process for a lot of people, but I think it's also an intentional learning process that you have to make the decision and the choice to be more empathetic, especially when we see how much pain and hurt there is in the world. So there was... I would also oh, add...
2: Please. I was. This is Dr. Rains. I was just going to add that I think it's time that we start to reimagine what healthcare looks like. I mean, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of discussion, and there's a lot of institutions that are going through this right now, like an opportunity to really examine it. And if we want, if we really want the outcomes we're seeking, then we need to um, align our actions and behaviors around that. And so, although it's been challenging times, um, well it's always been challenging for some groups, but in the last, you know, this awakening that many people seem to have had, um, is also an opportunity for growth. And I kind of see that's where we're at in the health professions as well.
0: Yeah. So there were, there were two additional questions that were submitted to us that I don't want to just kind of let disappear into the, into the void because I do want to address them. Um, one of them just asking questions about criminalization and health, that's a whole other topic, and I think it's definitely something we would like to to, to tackle on pop talk in the future. Um, but the other one we briefly discussed prior to the recording is just are there places in the country or world where racism is minimal, and how are health outcomes different in these countries? Um, and some of our panelists members definitely were able to chime in on that and um, I'm if you would just restate um your thoughts on that particular question
5: um hi, this is Dr. Robinson. I think that um you know, The question is, is, is racism minimal in other countries in the world and is it replaced with something else, right? So then you have to look at, well, is there some sort of class system? Is there um, some other type of um, construct that's been put in place? Because if you really look at it, as Dr. Epps is pointing out, race is a social construct. So is there something else that has been put in place of race to allow there to be um, some sort of oppression. Yes, yeah, so it
2: often comes up the conversation about Scandinavian countries and the way that they have been able to um, provide high-level quality health care to their populations. But it's important to note about the countries, um, and then they have when they do have immigration and uh, some of them have strict immigration policies that they don't have immigration that we have to the United States, but they do have immigration um, into their countries. But it's important to note that some of the problems that we experience in the United States are because of systemic racism. So of course we have interpersonal racism as well from person to person, but we also have systemic where the systems were designed to keep some people out and to uh, profit um, or to privilege some people over other people. Well, if you have a system that's built from the ground that doesn't do that, then the chances are you're gonna have better outcomes for things that are controlled within a system. So, for example, if you have protocols, um, my field in maternal health. So, if you have maternal health protocols in the hospital, you have them for everyone. So, that's a systemic way to improve birth outcomes. And what we're trying to do here in Texas and um, elsewhere around the United States by standardized protocols, but I'm thinking back to, again, to Scandinavian countries or countries that have um, not to say that they don't have racism, but within their systems, they weren't designed or built to keep some people out.
0: Thank you, Dr. Reins. That was definitely uh, enlightening there. This has been a profound series of episodes, and I'm thankful that all of you on our panel who participated so wholeheartedly in this discussion. Um, and special thanks to the additional two panel members who uh, joined us yet last time on housing. I know that This is just the tip of the iceberg, and conversations need to continue, not just in the general environment, but also in our schools, and uh, in order to help us become better faculty, better students, and better staff, and to help those uh, that may feel neglected. I hope the discussion has opened the eyes and ears of everyone who listened in, and I also hope that we can continue to build a more heartfelt, caring, and empathetic world together.
2: Thank you, Dr. Fernando. So this is Dr. Rains, and I had the opportunity to listen to a little bit of John Lewis's funeral service this afternoon and it, or this morning. And one of the things that really touches me about his life and his work and something he's left with us with his legacy is this idea of truth and justice and you just keep moving and you just keep moving and so i think that's what i'd like to leave we've had these conversations about very difficult topics that are are literally destroying people's lives um, especially when you think about you know the healthcare. and what i'd like to just leave with this group and with um, our audience is that um, the truth is that we can't have disparities and racism has no place in our society and we just need to keep moving in our respective areas of influence to make these changes.
3: And something I'd like to add is that um, microaggressions are clearly learned behaviors that the more we catch ourselves earlier in our careers as medical students, the better we can be about making our future black patients feel more comfortable so that they can open up to us about what they're experiencing. Only 6% of physicians in the US are Black, and we have to remember that our Black patients don't have a choice to see Black physicians all the time. So they are not going to get someone who's going to fully understand their experience, which is why when we become future physicians, it's our job to educate ourselves so we can be better advocates for them.
0: Hey, Bryn and-
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Um, First, I just have to say how grateful I am to have been part of this series. It's been such a wonderful opportunity for me to listen and to learn. Um, What I come back to thinking Uh, On these conversations is that the solution is never singular and so having these voices and different perspectives when we talk about in healthcare doing a root cause analysis or if there's a medical error something goes wrong we ask why and we don't just ask it once we refuse to simplify Um, and so I think that philosophy can take us pretty far.
4: Yeah, this is Harlan. I, I, it's really not much to add that it's not already been said. But one thing I have is about the the opportunity, um, the calling. I think it's 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 the time where I sense that a lot of us are disturbed, quite frankly, and and that's a good thing. And and it it, it could spark what I believe is new ways of thought. Uh, releasing the idea around racism, um, understanding that the diversity of thought uh, brings about innovation, uh, brings about change, and brings about a better quality of life for all. And so I think these are the great discussions that really should shed light on those opportunities in the
3: future.
5: Well, I think that uh, everything I was going to say has been said as well. But I would agree that um, racism is a multi-layered problem and it will require a multi-pronged solution. And I too am am very appreciative of the conversations that we as a panel have had and that are ongoing in our society. But I want to challenge us individually and us as as an institution and as providers that and educators that we lean into this moment um, that we're courageous and we don't shirk back from the discomfort of having to acknowledge our own contributors to our system failure and use this as an opportunity to basically recreate the systems of healthcare and medical education.
6: And yes, um, as everyone said, Um, good conversation, but what I want to challenge us is to keep the conversation going, that we can't just have the conversation when there's an uprising in our country. We must continue to have the conversations and not just have them with conversations that people that look like us or believe the same things that we believe. Because I know in my circle of influence, we continue to have conversation day after day. We've talked about race all the time. But we do need to branch out and have conversations to with others that don't look like me and don't believe like me. That's just how we learn from one of a, one another. We also have to speak out. We have to speak up. We can no longer be silent. We can no longer see injustice and not say anything. We must speak up. We must call out policies that continue to oppress people day in and day out. We, if we have the opportunity to rewrite policy, we need to stand up and say, let's rewrite it. I want to leave you with a quote, get out there and push and stand up and speak out and get in the way of with, in the way the same that my generation got in the way, get in good trouble. Good trouble is necessary, Representative John Lewis. Let's get into some good trouble.
0: I love that, that was great, thank you. Thank you so much our audience for listening to our special arc and we hope to see you soon on the next episode of Pop Talk. Pop Talk is a production of the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and is produced at the UNT Health Science Center in Fort Worth. To learn more, please visit our website at unthsc.edu.